Welcome back to the Florida History Podcast. I'm Carter Krishnire. And this week, for the next four weeks, starting this week for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at some themes in African-American history here in Florida, in black history. It is Black History Month, February 2023. So we're going to start this week looking back at the Stono Rebellion, runaway slaves coming to Florida in the 1700s, and the economics of slavery, as well as the establishment of Fort Mose, which was the first free black settlement in what is now the United States of America. And before we get deep into the issues of the Stono Rebellion and slavery and runaway slaves, let's give some background on um, the uh, events that led to the War of Jenkins Ear, which is where uh, free African-Americans fought so heroically to defend La Florida, uh, Spanish La Florida, from uh, English subjugation. It's important to note at this point, Florida has, has a reduced importance, has an increased dependency on the Spanish crown, and is even more dependent on luring runaway slaves and working with what whatever native peoples remain in the state, which are very few after the Appalachian Massacre, which we talked about in the last uh, episode after the uh, the collapse of the Spanish mission system and the El Camino Real uh, Road, the Spain, the, the, the Spanish colony of La Florida, which after 1727 includes Pensacola, which had been governed from uh, uh, from uh, Ciudad de Mexico uh, previously, but had uh, fallen into French hands from 1719 to about 1726-1727, is now part of the, the La Florida, and there are two towns, Pensacola and St. Augustine. There is nothing, a vast hinterland, vast depopulated hinterland in between the Spanish mission system that had been so successful and places like uh, San Luis de Apalachi, uh, which is roughly modern-day Tallahassee. Uh, we've done some videos from there, and, and, and uh, I've personally spent a lot of time in that mission, uh, the, the reconstructed mission there. Those places are gone. They're depopulated. They don't exist anymore. And uh, the Spanish have retreated to St. Augustine. So matters become worse for La Florida, for Spanish La Florida, when Georgia is founded in 1733 by James Oglethorpe as a buffer state for the British against Spanish Florida. Florida had continued to be a, run, a haven for runaway slaves, and San Augustine, San Augustin, obviously in, in Spanish, uh, had by this time become a heavily fortified town that was a threat to British holdings in the region, a heavily fortified and heavily mi militarized town. The founding of Georgia is really important because Obviously, it puts more pressure on Spanish Florida. It also creates a situation that between 1733 and Florida being ceded to the United States by Spain in 1819, armed conflicts took place near or along the, uh, this border. Florida and Georgia were part of the were, were ruled by the same um, same nation or same alignment for a total of 12 years in that period from 1763 to 1775 both were were british colonies in 1775 the patriots got a hold of the georgia government 
at uh, 1776, obviously, the United States declares independence. And beginning in 1775, as we're going to get into in this series, there are uh, multiple uh, skirmishes and battles along the Florida-Georgia border and in, in really the uh, northernmost portions of the Florida Peninsula, what are now Duval and, and, and Nassau counties, a, a number of maybe obscure events that took place in the greater scheme of things in the Revolutionary War, but nonetheless very important in terms of Florida history. So there, th- this border becomes very, very contentious from 1733 onward. Remember, the border wasn't well-defined before that. The Spanish, as we've talked about previously, had uh, governed all the way up to what is now modern Albany, Georgia, uh, effectively from the province of Appalachie, based at uh, Mission San Luis de Appalachie, modern-day Tallahassee, and had claimed that territory without in the interior without any opposition from the British until the raiding begins in the 1780s and 1790s. And then ultimately, we've talked about what happened in 1704. The British initially founded Georgia as a colony to be a strategic hedge against Spanish Florida. Georgia was to be a white-only colony, no slaves, initially. This was done to avoid the threat of runaway slaves to Florida. History has recorded Georgia as being founded as a penal colony. This is true to an extent, but the motivation for Georgia's creation was without question down to Florida's growing militarization of the era and the Spanish colony's increasing role as a haven for runaway slaves. Within a decade of Georgia's founding, the colonies of Florida and Georgia would effectively be at war with James Oglethorpe leading the British forces. But seeds of the conflict were sown two years before Oglethorpe founded Georgia off of the Florida coast. The, the, the conflict was seeded off the Florida coast. It was kind of uh, seeded, not seeded, okay? Seeded with an S. In April 1731, the Spanish boat La Familia, captained by Juan de Leon Fandino, Stopped the British frigate Rebecca. On board the Rebecca was Robert Jenkins. We're going to get to know that name. The ship's captain, whom the Spanish accused of smuggling. Accounts vary as to why it happened or who on the Spanish side committed the act, but Jenkins' ear was severed as a consequence of, of this encounter. Thus, the war that began several years later in 1739 earned its name the War of Jenkins' Ear. The Spanish boarding of the Rebecca was legal under the terms of the 1729 Treaty of Sevilla. However, tensions did not, didn't boil over until it became clear that the founding of Georgia represented a threat to the security of La Florida. As we've discussed previously, Florida was vital to Spanish shipping lanes between Latin America and the mother country, really in particular between Mexico and, and Spain. Moreover, much of the territory claimed by the British in Georgia was also claimed by the Spanish as part of La Florida. Now, again, a lot of that territory had been settled or had been uh, brought into the Spanish mission system, and those missions had been abandoned or destroyed during the course of uh, the Queen Anne's War. But that doesn't mean Spain stopped claiming the area. The Treaty of Madrid signed in 1670 essentially fixed the Spanish, the Florida-South Carolina border near modern-day Savannah. This is really important. So all of South Georgia is theoretically in La Florida. But the British disregarded the treaty. As we've noted before, Spain had either had missions or outright settlements during the 1500s and 1600s in areas 
uh, that by 1735 had been colonized by the British. In fact, uh, there were areas that the Spanish had actually had uh, missions or, or small settlements as far north as, as South, what is now South Carolina. So even the founding of Charlestown in 1670 began to encroach on what was that Spanish um, Spanish area. There's some his, historians now who view Spain's unwillingness to challenge the English founding of Jamestown in 1607 as a seminal event because all of the East Coast south of a certain point was at least perceived to be part of the Spanish colony of La Florida. And by not challenging the founding of Virginia, then you have um, you have effectively pushed yourself further south on that East Coast to where uh, you will eventually be limited to the peninsula of Florida, at least as far as the East Coast is concerned. Now, uh, territory w- went further west. That was kind of undefined at this point, the boundary between French Louisiana and Spanish Florida was eventually uh, affixed at uh, the Perdido River between uh, Mobile and Pensacola. Eventually, when the British get a hold of Florida, they end up, uh, we'll talk about this in in the future, it's not important in this episode, but the British will add lots of territory to uh, the British governance of Florida, which includes much of the modern-day states of Alabama, Mississippi, and uh, Louisiana. In fact, uh, well, uh, part of Louisiana, right? There's a area, and we've done a podcast on this specifically, there's an area known as the Florida provinces, uh, which includes Baton Rouge, by the way. Or, or West Baton Rouge, um, East Baton Rouge, excuse me, uh, in Louisiana, that's, um, that is very much um, a part of uh, historic British West Florida. So let's get back to our narrative. Oglethorpe spent the first few years of Georgia's existence creating coastal fortifications, including in 1736, the building of Fort St. George near the mouth of of the St. John's River in territory that was, in theory, an undisputed part of Spanish Florida. So think about that. Kind of where Fort Caroline had been built by the French in the 1560s, around the same location. Pretty significant. Georgia's founding was critical to preventing further Spanish success in destabilizing the growing slave-based economy in the Carolinas. Spanish agents in this period were found as far north as New York, which was a slave colony at the time, with lots of slaves, actually, tempting African uh, Americans and uh, Africans who were enslaved to escape to freedom in Florida. Similarly, the Spanish could not tolerate British encroachment on their territory, territory previously agreed by treaty with Britain or by Eng- with England at the time. Now it's uh, obviously after the Act of Union, we call the uh, uh, the country Great Britain after 1707 to be part of Florida. So let's uh, talk a little bit about runaway slaves and their importance in this war. I think they were more important, far more important in in the War of Jenkins here than they were. In uh, the in Queen Anne's War, although the prospect of slaves running away to Saint Augustine, uh, Saint Augustine, was a motivating factor for James Moore, who uh, is the ultimate uh, villain in Florida history, as we've talked about. So, in 1693, King Charles II of Spain issued a proclamation giving liberty to all runaway slaves, provided they converted to Catholicism, which uh, was. As uh, I don't want to get too deep into it in in, in this uh, podcast, and quite frankly, I don't know a whole lot in, in terms of my my own knowledge of the African continent in that era. But there are 
academics who contend that for some of the slaves that had been brought to South South Carolina, they had brought been brought from places which rep, which are in modern day Angola or Mozambique, which. Uh, meant that they had had some contact with Portuguese explorers. So for some of them, uh, converting to Catholicism was pretty simple, really, uh, that, that they were comfortable with it. They were more likely to convert to Catholicism than to uh, to convert to, to Anglicanism or, or whichever denomination of Protestantism was, uh, was prevalent in South Carolina. And, and forgive my ignorance for not knowing which denomination, uh, because each, uh, each of the American colonies that were under that were settled by Englishmen, the colonies to the north of Florida. They all had some sort of unique religious story, and I, I, I forgive my ignorance on on Carolina, but they certainly were not Catholics, right? And in Florida, they were Catholics. So um, this was effectively the response from Spain to England's foundation of Charlestown in 1670. For several years prior to the proclamation, the governors of Florida had actively pursued a policy of harboring runaway slaves, but there was no official sanction from this from the king in Madrid. There was no official royal decree behind this. Now, after 1693, there was, which made them more and more aggressive. Since now we have official crown policy sanctioning and encouraging what Florida administrators were already doing on their own, that intensified the effort to, to lure runaway slaves to Florida. Before it was, okay, uh, if I'm a governor of Florida and there is a slave that runs away from the English colonies to the north, I, I am going to require that a person of African descent to convert to Catholicism. And, uh, and if they convert to Catholicism, they can become a part of Florida society. In fact, there were some runaway slaves in these Spanish missions uh, along the El Camino Real that we've talked about. After 1693, it not only became a policy of, okay, if the runaway slaves come to us, but as I mentioned just a little bit earlier, it became a very uh, aggressive thing where there were Spanish agents now uh, filtering their way through the colonies, the the British colonies to the north, encouraging African-Americans to rebel or run away to Florida. This was almost the the policy of population replenishment after – we talked about the destruction that was that was brought to Florida by Queen Anne's War and the depopulation of much of the state. So after Queen Anne's War, St. Augustine was rebuilt, and once Georgia was founded, Spanish Florida redoubled their efforts to attract runaway slaves. Uh, as more runaways came to Florida, the more important they became to the defense of La Florida. The colony had become very, very dependent on freed African-Americans in direct contrast to Virginia and Carolina to the north, which had become completely dependent on enslaved African-Americans. So let's make this distinction. Spanish Florida was dependent on freed African Americans, the British colonies were dependent on enslaved African Americans. Very, very important. And maybe something that uh, is seen as anti-American to talk about by some people who critique history and think that they know the history better than the rest of us, uh, like the governor or current governor of Florida. Um, I'll cut my editorial commentary about Governor DeSantis there. But again, Florida was very different than the colonies to the north. So 
Um, you have more and more African-Americans. And in 1738, as we've discussed before, Fort Mose was established two miles north of St. Augustine. And, and today, if you're driving in to St. Augustine on uh, US-1, let's say you're coming from Jacksonville, uh, the Avenue Small, or Nocatee, that area, you, you come south, you will see Fort Mose before you get into St. Augustine. And uh, it's, a, it's a state park, and it's, it's pretty well-preserved. It's really kind of cool. So uh, that's uh, uh, a place to go. And I, I assume maybe the museum there is, is, is reopened. The last time I went, it was closed because of COVID. But, but the natural area and the, and the remnants, all of that is still there. So in 1738, Fort Mose was established, as I said, two miles north of St. Augustine. It was a village designed to defend St. Augustine that was the home of free blacks. First free African-American settlement in North America. By 1740, the town had a population of 100 to maybe 115 within its walls and was governed by Antonio Salgado. Military defenses were led by Francisco Menendez, who's a great, great story, one of the great Floridians of all time, a runaway slave from South Carolina who in 1728 had been placed in charge of a militia of Africans in uh, in St. Augustine, and uh, I, I should we should call Fort Mose, and we've anglicized it. Okay, it's Saint Teresa de Mose. That was what uh, the name was in the uh, in the colony of La Florida. Uh, Governor Montiano had promised at this point. Uh, Governor Montiano of, of La Florida had promised freedom to slaves who um, may settle in South Carolina. So that was guaranteed, and Fort Mose being the first legally sanctioned free African settlement in what would become the United States was really important and word spread. The town's founding, along with Governor Montiano's uh, uh, promises, reached Georgia and the Carolinas. So slaveholders and British authorities became really nervous Spanish agents were uh, fanning across British territory, the British colonies, to let slaves know that freedom awaited them if they made it to Florida. And you have at this point a view that the Spanish are stirring up a rebellion. In April of 1739, you had four slaves plus uh, an Irish Catholic uh, person who was uh, uh, a prisoner in uh, in Charlestown. And again, at this point, you have to remember the British Empire or Great Britain is, is very anti-Catholic. I mean, anti-Catholicism was actually one of the motivating factors. It's, again, I think this is, these are some, some of the things that are left out of American history historically. Uh, anti-Catholicism was a big factor in the building of the British colonies. And I believe as the British crown began to reconcile with Catholics, you saw American colonists who were anti-Catholic, like those in, in, in South Carolina, uh, want, want, want to break free of the British Empire. So Irish Catholic accompanies four slaves. They flee to Florida. And um, 
later that year, a Jesuit priest is captured in South Carolina. So, all of this leads to the largest slave rebellion in the history of North America, the Stono Rebellion of 1739. And many of the slaves that were rebelling were heading to Florida. So the idea was they're rebelling against their masters, they're decapitating the, the plantation slave system in South Carolina, and they're going to march to Florida, which is only 150 miles away. The goal of the Stono Rebellion very clearly is for these slaves to get to Florida and achieve their freedom in Florida. And this also serves the aims of the Spanish crown. So they get these slaves, uh, they free them if they come to Florida, they convert to Catholicism and, they, and, and they're freed. And in fact, the slaves that took, took part in the Stono Rebellion, from what I understand, again, this is not an area anywhere near my expertise, but academics who do who have studied this say that it would have been very natural for those uh, those um, slaves that were enslaved in South Carolina and took place in the Stono Rebellion because of the part of Africa they had been from. They were familiar with Catholicism. They were more comfortable with it already than they were with the Protestant denominations in the British Empire. And they would have happily converted to Catholicism and, and served the Spanish crown. And of course, Spain, uh, Florida has been depopulated after Queen Anne's war. So the goal is to get more people into Florida. And that means the most readily available people are uh, African-American slaves who can convert to Catholicism and also uh, would probably have um, a, a, a zeal to fight the British. It's part of what they were thinking, right? That there's, there's no question that if you could get slaves to flee to Florida, you can then arm those slaves. This is also terrifying to the to the British and to the Americans, if you want to call them that, Americans in the future after 1776, uh, that you are arming African-Americans, which is what the Spanish are doing here. They're arming African-American, people of African descent, black people, and they're saying to them, fight the British, fight your oppressors. So the Spanish do this. Most of the slaves do not make it. The rebellion is crushed. But hearing of the freedoms offered in Florida meant into 1740, you had smaller rebellions in the Carolinas, uh, in Virginia, and uh, throughout the southern colonies of British North America. So at this point, war is inevitable between Spanish Florida and the British Southern colonies. Uh, Fort Mose and the freed Africans uh, were, were too much for the British to handle. They needed to destroy Florida. They needed to uh, take Florida away from the Spanish and put it in British hands. Uh, but at the same time, the Spanish have these freed Africans who would be very enthusiastic about fighting for the Spanish crown against their former oppressors, the British. And also, again, they convert, converted to Catholicism. So you also have this issue of, of, uh, of the British uh, attitude towards Catholics at the time, which was very negative. Native Americans as was the case during Queen Anne's War, as we talked about previously, would once again largely side with the, uh, uh, the Spanish. But unlike the previous war 
when Spain was defending a colony that was prosperous economically, although it had been subject to a lot of raiding in the 30 years leading up to that war. So I would say actually the high point for Florida, for La Florida, was not 1700, as, as some historians have said. I would say it was probably 1670, which was the year Charlestown was founded. I think Florida was at its height then, at its apex. Would not reach that level again until probably after the Civil War, quite frankly. So 200 years of, of being um, a less relevant, less prosperous place. Uh, but unlike, uh, again, unlike the case in Queen Anne's War, uh, Spain was now defending a largely depopulated colony, but was highly militarized, so more defensible. But it was a colony whose economic value was irrelevant, right? It was worthless. It had been a, an economic commodity for the Spanish Empire prior to 1700 or prior specifically to 1702 uh, when the war started. Uh, so it was not really uh, as important to Spain's empire uh, and it had greatly diminished in value since the disasters of the early part of the century. But at that point, Spain still is trying to keep their foothold in North America. And they have fighters that are going to have a certain degree of zealotry. Florida, which wasn't very far from Georgia and South Carolina, English colonies, so British colonies by this point. So Fort Mose and Spain's willingness to harbor runaway slaves, not only harbor them, but allow them uh, to convert to, Christ uh, to Catholicism and then uh, uh, become ordinary, normal citizens, tasked with the same sort of tasks that the Spanish colonists themselves were, uh, was a, a great threat to the psyche of the British to the north, of the British colonists, who, of course, uh, as we know, in later years would uh, would be very, very aggressive in defending slavery and racial institutions from any outsiders, including from Great Britain, right, who, who, who themselves evolved on the issue of slavery. Uh, now, in, at this point in the 1740s, Great Britain dominates the slave trade. They are the... Uh, they are the great perpetrators of, uh, of slavery. They are the great beneficiaries of slavery. They are profiting off of the triangular slave trade. Now, there is domestic opposition that begins to spring up. There is the Enlightenment going on in Europe, and that Enlightenment does spread to Great Britain. And there are thinkers and writers and politicians in Great Britain who begin to oppose the idea of human slavery, oppose the slave trade, oppose uh, the, the, the very racist construct around North American slavery and slavery in the Caribbean. And so that becomes a theme and an issue in internal British politics going forward, which is part of the reason why uh, I think that there was uh, uh, some, uh, some, some real uh, differences of opinion within the United Kingdom. And eventually, a difference of opinion between the United Kingdom and the independent United States of America. Although, uh, ironically enough, uh, the United Kingdom, despite outlawing slavery on their own and, and, and being really kind of the, the, the place where uh, people like Frederick Douglass could go to speak and, 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 uh, and, and would get financial support and, and, of course, 
Canada as well. Canada was part of the British Empire. They had outlawed slavery and they were very anti-slavery and the Underground Railroad made its way to Canada. In spite of that, Britain continued to, to benefit from slave labor all the way until the end of the American Civil War. There is actually an argument to be made now in hindsight, economically, that despite uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson's hatred of the British and Thomas Jefferson's uh, Francophile disposition, that Hamilton being into modernizing the U.S., uh, uh, industrializing the U.S., into the kind of monetary policy he was, economic nationalism, if you want to call it that, or or, or not even economic nationalism. I would say he was effectively kind of a free trader, but understood that there were certain things uh, in the international trade that were beneficial to the United States, and that included trade with Britain. I I would argue that Jefferson and slavery and this really uh, real dependence on slave labor and certain crops like cotton effectively made the American South an economic colony of the United Kingdom and, and to a lesser extent, France after independence, long term, from, from, from about 1810, 1820 onward. The, the American South was effectively a colony once again of European powers because they were so dependent on, on slave labor and the slave trade and selling uh, goods produced because of the slave trade to Europe. So Jefferson may have hated the British, and he and his followers may have thought Hamilton was effectively a British agent. But in reality, Hamilton did more, in my opinion, to establish an independent U.S. economy that was vibrant than uh, Jefferson, whose uh, advocacy of slavery uh, and, and keeping uh, people of African descent in bondage actually uh, made his beloved South an economic colony of Great Britain once again, even after being achieving political independence. Anyway, anyway, that's a topic probably for a completely different podcast, maybe not even one on Florida. So let's get back to the War of Jenkins here. On October 23rd, 1739, just as uh, South Carolina is undergoing a number of slave rebellions, which are inspired by the situation in Florida, as we've talked about, the freedom on offering in Florida, Britain formally declared war on Spain. Naval operations had begun the previous day, October 22nd, by the Royal Navy against the northern ports of South America. And these would be the ports in what is now Guiana and Colombia. Meanwhile, Governor Oglethorpe of Georgia was raising an army to invade Florida. The force included English colonists from the Carolinas and Georgia, as well as their Native American allies, the Creeks. By December, Oglethorpe was effectively raiding Spanish forts along the northern coast of Florida. Uh, this this is effectively uh, between north of St. Augustine and San Augustine, uh, as it was known at the time, uh, northward toward the St. John's River, towards the mouth of the St. John's River. Unbeknownst to the British, the Spanish had taken the founding of Georgia as an impetus to reinforce and strengthen the Castillo de San Marcos that uh, we obviously have done a whole podcast on the building of, of the Castillo. In January 1740, a tall watchtower and a new parapet was uh, added to the fort. Very, very significant when you're talking about a coming siege from the British. 
In May 1740, Oglethorpe's force decided to take aim directly at St. Augustine, four forts, including Fort Mosse, four forts outside St. Augustine, fell to the British. On June 13th, the British began a siege at St. Augustine and the Royal Navy blockaded the town. Seven British warships sat outside the inlet. Just outside the inlet, in fact, they were just kind of lining up um, on the Atlantic Ocean side. But there's the inlet where it comes into the Matanzas River. And um, the, the, the ships were queued up there. Governor Manuel de Montiano, who we've talked about in the previous episode, had only about 900 professional soldiers at his disposal for the town's defense. I mean, that's a very small force. The governor petitioned uh, Havana in in Cuba, uh, which had much stronger defenses and much more men, uh, for reinforcements and prepared for a long siege of of, of St. Augustine with rather minimal provisions. So at this point, St. Augustine's surrounded, right? They've got the inlet. They've got ships outside the inlet. Uh, the British had occupied Fort Mose, which is two miles north of the city walls in St. Augustine, or uh, actually more or less like a mile and three quarters, maybe north of the Castillo. But, so they have that position. Uh, they have um, 200 troops there under Colonel William Parker. And... They had blockaded the inlet, so there's no way for for Spanish provisions, reinforcements to come in and out. And the British land forces had been south of the town since mid-May. They occupied Anastasia Island, which, uh, as uh, most of you probably know, is right across the inlet, uh, is right across the Matanzas River to the south of the inlet. And... Uh, uh, all of the areas that currently make up uh, St. Augustine Beach. So at this point, Governor Montiano realizes the Spanish have to relieve some of the pressure around St. Augustine. So what they did is they attacked Fort Mose and inflicted heavy, heavy British casualties. The town's inhabitants had already retreated to St. Augustine when, of course, and, and again, I think this this man deserves his own podcast, and so we're going to do it at some point. Um, Fernando Menendez uh, had um, had led uh, and Sal, uh, Governor Salgado, who had been the, the kind of the governor of the town of Fort Jose, gathered Spain, Spain's Seminole um, Native American allies, and uh, they had their contingent of free African-Americans. So they launched a surprise attack on Fort Mose with upwards of about 300 free blacks uh, and Seminoles combined. The result was this, uh, the, their force um, flying the flag of Spain ended up killing up to 75 British soldiers. 35 others were captured while Spanish losses were relatively small. Um, less than 10 uh, deaths among uh the free blacks and Seminoles that were fighting for the Spanish. Colonel Palmer, Colonel William Palmer was among the British dead. So, um, and remember, there's there's a great deal of passion for this fight. Spain has given these African-Americans freedom. They've converted to Catholicism and they uh, they have been given their freedom. And, and as I think uh, we see throughout history, you have... Uh, situations where there are a great, um, great passion 
on the f- part of those who have been liberated to not be enslaved again. Great passion on the part of someone like Francisco Menendez, who uh, had suffered so deeply at the hands of the British and actually later in his life. Again, this is why we probably have to do a, a, a podcast on him. What what an important individual in the history of, of, of Florida. Uh, Francisco Menendez would be captured again by the by the British in the future. And uh, after that would escape back to um Back to Spanish Florida. Uh, Antonio Salgado, of course, we mentioned also um, leading this force. Following this surprise attack, the Spanish forces and its native allies fell back into the city walls and the defenses of the capital, which was San Agustin, began. Eventually, all the residents and those who had fled to the town were moved into the Castillo. Those who did not, didn't move into the fort fled into the woods and, to the, and into the swamps nearby. San Agustin and the surrounding area, home to nominally, normally, excuse me, about 2,000 to 2,200 residents, was completely empty. So everybody is in the Castillo. Most everybody's in the Castillo. Those who are not have fled into the woods and the swamps nearby uh, to, to fight against the British. On July 6th, the defense looked like it was cracking. Provisions had not arrived to reinforce the town. The British were reinfor- bombarding the fort, and they also had the inlet blocked. They killed two Spanish defenders. But the Castillo held, Coquina Rock, uh, and the long guns from the fort were proving a menace for the, for the British attackers. Finally, on July 7th, Spanish ships from um, Havana arrived and incredibly blocked the British blockade of the inlet. Get into the inlet, restock the town, and now the town had provisions for the foreseeable future. In fact, um, the the town had provisions for several months more of a siege. And with the population of the town largely behind the walls of the Castillo and more defenders who, who could take on the role of snipers and, 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 and uh, guerrilla fighters, if you will. That's a modern term, but guerrilla fighters in that era uh, sitting in the swamps and the woods outside St. Augustine. Um, Oglethorpe has really little choice but uh, to attack now at this moment because hurricane season is upon us. There's all sorts of unpredictability. The British supply lines now have been uh, strained. So what we thought was a siege where there would be attrition in St. Augustine, in St. Augustine, ends up being the British are now stretched too thin. Their supply lines from Savannah and some of these other forts that they've captured has become thin. Um, And British morale was low. So Oglethorpe wants to attack. But the morale is so low, the the strategic logistics aren't there. So unbelievably, he retreats. Siege is lifted, effectively voluntarily by the British after this uh, restocking of St. Augustine. So once again, St. Augustine had survived an attempt to take the city by Britain. But the war wasn't done yet for Florida because in, in 1742, Montiano, now feeling strong, now realizing the city was impregnable, decides he's going to attack Georgia. So Montiano leads over 2,000 soldiers. We've seen some sources put it as high as 2,500 soldiers in an invasion of Georgia. His forces were defeated at St. Uh, Simon's Island, which is uh, 
obviously south of, of Savannah. Uh, short of reaching Savannah, which was the goal, reaching Savannah, sacking Savannah, taking Savannah. Then there was another lost battle um, in, in that neighborhood, Cumberland Island. So having lost two battles, the Spanish forces, having also um, seen about 250 soldiers die um, and many more captured, withdrew back to St. Augustine. And the status quo before the war was restored. The St. Mary's River was effectively the border between Spain, Spanish Florida, and British Georgia. Oglethorpe actually thought maybe he would invade Florida again uh, after the uh, the victories against the Spanish uh, in, in at St. Simons and Cumberland Island, but he opted not to. So Florida's safe at this point, but any pretense uh, that... Spain could claim what had become the the areas that had become the British colony of Georgia were shattered. And um, in 1750, Spain signs the Treaty of Madrid, which affixes that recognizes Georgia as a British colony and affixes the St. Mary's uh, River as the border between Florida and Georgia, which is um, what remains today. Thank you for listening. Uh, next week, we'll be back with another edition of the Florida History Podcast focusing on something related to African-American black history in the state of Florida. Not quite sure what uh, that topic will be, but uh, probably something uh, from the 1800s, right? Uh, since we've now covered the 1700s. Maybe uh, we'll, we'll touch on the American Revolution a little bit also, but uh, we'll be back next week in any event. Uh, Look forward to speaking to everyone then. Thank you.